This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot, now out in paperback. I interviewed George just recently about this very book on the show. A toxic ideology of extreme competition and individualism dominates our world. It misrepresents human nature, destroying hope and common purpose. Only a positive vision can replace it. A new story that re-engages people in politics and lights a path to a better future. Guardian columnist George Monbiot shows how new findings in psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology cast human nature in a radically different light, as supremely altruistic and cooperative. He shows how we can build on these findings to create a new politics of belonging. Both democracy and economic life can be radically reorganized from the bottom up, enabling us to take back control and overthrow the forces that have thwarted our ambitions for a better society. Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot. Out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Sorry to Bother You is a hilarious film about the dead, serious shittiness of life under neoliberalism's flexibilized and precarious labor regime, a system teetering upon a thin line between free labor exploitation and a form of expropriation reminiscent of full-on slave labor. It's all at the mercy of the thinly-veiled barbarity of Palo Alto-style techno-utopianism. It's about how capitalist society divides and conquers friends and family, to claim not only our obedience, but also our very souls, and about how the task of the left is to organize to see through that game and fight together. My guest today is Boots Riley, who wrote and directed the film, and who also fronts the left-wing hip-hop group, The Coup. But before we get rolling, this podcast is supported by podcast listeners, meaning people just like you who make contributions at patreon.com slash the dig. So if you're not supporting the independent left-wing media you consume already, please do so now at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We've got a weekly newsletter for contributions of $5 a month. $10 gets you Jacobin's The ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. And for $20 or more, we have lots of great lefty books to send. Also, we have a live dig event coming up on the left response to the climate crisis in Brooklyn. It's August 17th, 7 p.m. at Verso Books. I've put the details in the show notes. Okay, here's Boots Riley. Two things to mention, though. One is that I lost my voice after yelling at a bunch of far-right protesters a few days before this interview, and it turns out, I just went to the doctor, I have some sort of thyroid issue, probably. So my voice sounds a little weird in the interview and probably a little weird now as well. The second thing, a spoiler warning. We talk about all sorts of scenes and sorry to bother you. So you may want to watch the film before listening to this.
Boots Riley, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. In the film, Danny Glover's character, Langston, tells your film's protagonist, Cassius Green, who is played by Lakeith Stanfield, that he can only succeed at telemarketing by adopting a white voice. And Cassius responds that he already has one, already has a white voice. And Glover says that he's not talking about just any white voice, but about a very particular sort of white voice. And that voice is not a white voice that appears to be available to just any white guy. For example, the Cassius's supervisor who sports a neck tattoo doesn't have that sort of white voice. Can you say a little bit about what the white voice means in the film? Yeah. Well, and first uh, I'd like to clarify that um, Cassius says, well, people say I already talk with the white voice. And he says a line that says, I'm not talking about Will Smith white. That's not white. That's just proper. Um, And meaning like, I'm not, you know, we're not commenting on necessarily use of dialect or anything like that necessarily, meaning there's some gray areas in there. But what he is say, what he does say is basically that it's all a performance, that even white people are performing whiteness, that we're all performing what we're doing. Um, and, you know, I, my thing is, I, I don't think it's something we can get away from, that it's just kind of how human interaction is. However, um, there it is guided by ideas. So uh, how Langston explains the white voice to Cassius is that, first of all, you know, there really is no white voice, that it's what white people wish they sounded like and what they think they're supposed to sound like. It's this idea that your bills are paid and you don't have any problems. In my mind, it is a reaction to that that performance of whiteness that happens sometimes is a reaction to the racist tropes of black folks. Um, Not necessarily an anti-racist reaction necessarily. It's just a reaction, and it, it is uh, the the opposite of those tropes. So, for instance, uh, some of the, the ideas out there are, you know, black folks are so savage, or they are ju- their culture is just not sufficient, that's why they're in poverty, and, or uh, angry, or lazy. All of these things that are supposed to point to why black folks are in poverty. And, and the reason, well, there's a reason for that. The reason for the need for, of those tropes is to somehow say that poverty is the cause, is caused by the impoverished. That poverty is not caused by the economic system we're in. In reality, the economic system we're in must have poverty in order to survive. It can't be without poverty. You, uh, you know, if there's full employment under capitalism, then that would mean all the wages could be whatever they want it to be. Nobody could get fired. There's no 
somebody to replace them. Now, while that's even an extreme circumstance, somebody could be like, well, maybe there would be just a little unemployment. But there's a direct correlation between unemployment going down and wages going up and therefore stocks going down. So you'll see uh, more public uh, financial publications like Wall Street Journal or whatever will openly worry when the unemployment rate goes down because there's that direct correlation because they, they have to have an army of unemployed workers to make employed workers desperate enough to settle for less. And, and, and that's just part of the equation, even when you look at their incorrect supply and demand uh, model, even that fits into that. So how do you then have a system in which poverty is built into it and get people to buy into that system? And that, ha- that is where the utility of these racist tropes come in. Now, the reason for that utility, the reason for putting those uh, those ideas about people on what uh, white people would look at as the other is to somehow convince the white working class that they are not impoverished, that they are not at risk because they don't have that culture. Because those things in that culture are what is causing poverty as opposed to the system itself. So there's the, the performance of whiteness that says that everything is okay and that even if I'm making $22,000, $23,000 a year, I'm actually middle class. I'm a white guy in the Midwest making that much, but I can, I can, I can align with those much better off than me. And that performance of whiteness is part of that. The other character who's able to adopt a white voice aside from Cassius is Mr. I don't know uh, how you say his name, Mr. Blank. His name's never... Yeah, you don't say his name. It's just Mr. (laughs) and seven underscores. The fact that that he's the other one who's able to successfully perform a, a white voice, what does the their ability to Cassius and Mr. Blank's ability to adopt the white voice. Does that say something about the actual solidarities of the black, the black elite? It's not what I was intending on saying, but you know, um, it's kind of like if you were to make a sculpture with a lot of pieces of mirrors on it, you're putting those all on an, at angles that connect to each other you're going to end up reflecting on something that you didn't intend to reflect on, right? Because it, it's all connected. But I didn't uh, in, intend on, on that. But the question is, I, I, I think um, that what Mr. Mr. Blank says to him, white voice at all times here, there is this idea of, uh, of uh, respectability uh, that gets put out by the black elite that is part of the whole um, 
pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing. And that is kind of reflected in that, like, look, act right. And that's part of the key to success. Um, and I think that there is one point in which, uh, uh, Mr. <laughs> lets down his his voice and that's when we hear some of what his whole motivation is and not only besides what he says the fact that he's letting it down then is a time that's much cl- where they're being much closer and confi- confiding in each other more than when they are performing the white voice. Your film also presents a really diverse picture, and I think a, a very accurate picture, because it is diverse, of the working class. That seems particularly important at this moment when working class is so often invoked as shorthand for white working class. And also, on the other hand, when a certain form of identity politics, the, the sort that's put out, out there by people like Hillary Clinton, presumes that class issues don't matter for people of color for women, for queer people. Tell me a little about how you went about portraying a slice of the Oakland working class the way that you did. I didn't have to think about it in intellectual terms in that way. I just showed what people go through. And I didn't have to, you know, I just tried to represent as true a portrayal of life as I know, and not edit out certain things, you know. Like, so for instance, all the things that that Cassius goes through as far as struggling for money and things like that are things that people are always going through, but uh, some of it is either edited out of other films or made to seem special in some way, that it's only that character going through it. And I think this film gives this feeling that, that, that so many people are going through it, and uh, which is true. And I just showed parts of the city that normally wouldn't get filmed. People come to Oakland, they're not going to show the, like, like, they're not going to show those homeless camps. Right? And... I mean, a lot of films have shot in in the Bay Area. Ant-Man shot in the Bay Area last time. They shot in the Bay Area this time. I haven't seen it, but I bet you they don't have the homeless camps in there. Uh, matter of fact, I wrote those camps into my screenplay at a time when they weren't visible. There were homeless people, maybe the same amount, who knows. But where homeless people lived was more like in places that were hidden, that they didn't have to be, you know, squatting places or whatever, um, or just someplace hidden. But because of development, they got pushed out into the open. So when I wrote it, it didn't exist, and we thought we were going to have to spend money on production design for that. Just showing life and not cutting out those details, you know, where somebody else showing, you know, you show another movie where it's a 
young black guy gets a job and is on his way to work. They're not going to show that he only has 40 cents to put in the gas tank. They're going to show that he has to pass some black folks that are acting uh, aggressive or something and then show his relationship to that performance because that's what the filmmakers are concerned with. And that's what they've been told to look for. And even though it might not even really exist in real life. And in that sense, I think, yeah, the, there's a, a certain type of film that's about the struggling white working class person mm-hmm. and a certain type of film that's about the black person from the hood. And your film sort of collapses that distinction. The other way that it does that, I think, is that the main character is concerned about himself in the context of the universe and in context of time and space. He's concerned with why he exists or what it all means. And it's something that actually, from what I can tell, all humans think about. And it's often, it's, it's very rarely, well, I, I haven't found any examples of that Um, when they show a person of color. You know, it's always around some material struggle. They got to get out of the hood. They got to, you know, um, figure out how to get out of this complication or whatever. And what we end up finding is that then when folks talk about, uh, when, when, when outside of those narratives that we see, when folks talk about, oh, uh, there are you know, these folks, whatever hustle they're, they're being told by the news is happening. They're selling dope or they're engaging in selling illegal, uh, engaging in, in, in selling illegal goods or whatever, that somehow that these are inhuman people who are just concerned with money and therefore it's easy to kind of give them some sort of amoral character in the narratives that are told in in mainstream media, in in the news, in newspapers. Everybody, even folks that are involved in that, are concerned with who they are and what what mark they're going to leave on the world. And I think that's really important to... Um, making that, you know, to showing that relationship to humanity and, and, and then putting the actual material struggles in that context um, makes it not just be a, a story about ones and zeros. One particularly hilarious of many hilarious scenes in the movie is when the techno-corporate supervillain, Steve Lift, who is played by Army Hammer, demands that Cassius rap for his guests at a party. Mm-hmm. And the party, the guests are almost entirely white. And the presumption, of course, is that because Cassius is black, he can rap, but Cassius cannot rap. But he gives in and basically just starts rapping the N-word. And the white guests go wild. What's up with this 
white crowds just barely below the surface, barely suppressed desire to to scream the N-word? You know, a lot of this film is talking about performance. And definitely that's one of the more obvious scenes where it's talking about performance. The question is, what are people performing? You know, there are all sorts of, you know, it's not really even about that word. That word ends up symbolizing what folks are looking for out of some of the tropes, what, what, what people what some of the tropes of blackness are doing, what functions they're performing, even when they're supposedly accepted, you know, when they're supposedly not a, uh, you know, malicious feeling that's uh, outwardly recognizable. What is that about? And so I think that that's what that performance is about. It's not, um, you know, and not that that might not happen. I mean, I think maybe there are certain crowds where they wouldn't, they'd be sophisticated enough to understand to not do that. Who knows? But the point is not really even that. That just symbolizes what the performance of blackness is uh, to uh, is upholding for um, a white audience sometimes, you know, and that could happen in full movies in and of themselves. That can happen in songs. It can happen in, you know, who you're representing. In that case, he's at a party and he's the representative, basically, and. Uh, you know, he has his white voice on first, and he's told, no, that's not what you're here for. Take off the white voice. It's pointing out the, uh, the, the perf- what the performance of blackness is in certain areas, in certain uh, arenas, in certain uh, contexts, and what it actually does that's what it's commenting on and there's an incredible irony in that situation to get to that party he's had to perform a certain type of blackness that that involves having a white voice but then once he's he's there what he's prized for is their expectation that he will perform the the kind of opposite of that which is like a performance of ghetto blackness and then they are like eager to put on blackface and join in on the, on the show. The question is, what does the performance of blackness of what's perceived as blackness do? When we're watching the movie that we mentioned before, which is a young black man trying to do good and there, and they pass by some other black folks that are like, you know, trying to get them to sell dope or something like that. What is that performance of blackness doing? Is that, you know, no matter who the director is. It's saying that it's about choices, success or failure. Because that it's saying that, it's reinforcing that things should be the way they are. 
it's saying that things are the way they are because people's behavior dictates exactly where they are in the hierarchy of capitalism. And it's not true, but that's one of the things that the performances of perceived blackness do. One reason that your film will be viewed or probably already has been viewed an order of magnitude more times than most left-wing films is is that the protest message is wrapped in absurdism, whether it's Tessa Thompson's character, Detroit, wearing a shirt that reads, the future is female ejaculation, to these brutally violent but still very silly scenes of cops helping the company elite smash through a picket line. Can you say a little bit about your thinking in pairing communist politics with absurdity? First, I'd say that I think the politics of it, I mean, I'm a communist, but I think that so many people would agree with the the viewpoint that's presented in the movie that wouldn't even call themselves a communist because all that is really, all that a class analysis is, is an exact a more exact analysis of what's happening, right? So it's it's not really like there's some other viewpoint that people don't have. It really, it was only until I started doing certain interviews that people identified it as that. Um, but the the truth is, is that there's a class analysis happening that is really just an analysis of how the how this economic system affects us. And it's more just true than anything, right? And um, and so obviously my analysis leads me to be optimistic and then tell a story that uh, actually doesn't edit out the rebellion that actually exists in our lives. You know, it, it, it all of this stuff that is going on in this movie has been going on since they've been making films, but has been edited out. So I think a lot of people um, see this as just a as just a movie that is more real than others. Um, th- definitely, there are folks that recognize. Uh, then there are other folks that recognize. You know because they understand who I am and I've stated it clearly and they also understand who, you know, they, they also understand, they've, they've also been, um, you know, uh, familiar with a certain kind of politics so that they can categorize it. Okay. So separately, there's a tendency to try to, even when something breaks the rules, showing that the other rules didn't, you know, didn't have to be there, where somebody then tries to take that thing that broke the rules and make new rules around it. And that would be unfortunate with this film. And what um, would that, what would those new rules be? I mean, like saying that the, this worked because it wrapped itself in absurdism. It worked. Who, you know, that's what I did, but that's not necessarily the reason why it works? It may have worked because the scenes actually worked. You know what I'm saying? It may have worked because of other things that were able to keep people involved, of which absurdism is one. But 
I would be very depressed if a lot of people tried to do the same thing because all of a sudden now there's new rule books, especially what happens is writers, you know, all these rules that we've been given um, are like safety for writers. Like, okay, I don't know if this is good, but I've read these books that say you're supposed to do A, B, and C, and by the time you get to page 10, it's supposed to do this, and by the time you get to page 30, it should do that. And those are like lifeboats in the sea and people cling to those and without knowing whether what they're doing is really good but just knowing that that at least they've hit the they've clung to the rules that they've been told that will make people like it um and what i did was you know i was knowledgeable about some of those rules um and or all of those rules and and ended up following some of them and ended up using some of them to play with people with, but then also just did stuff based on whether I thought it worked, whether I thought I needed it, whether I thought, you know. So I didn't set out even to make this knowing that there was going to be any fantastical elements in it. I That ended up happening because as I told the story, I mean, it was just going to be a telemarketing the, the telemarketing story with um, a struggle that happens on the work site that he had to decide what side he was on. But the absurdist and fantastical elements came in um, as I was trying to find ways to put what was happening in the context of larger philosophical ideas. So I didn't say, like, the only way this is going to work is if I wrap it in absurdism. And do that. I just looked for what worked as I went along. I took the journey with Cassius. And and, and so, yeah, it's easy to kind of look back and see what worked. But there's a way of talking about it that kind of ends up giving people these new rules and making things boring again. The radical absurdism does seem to be a sensibility that also comes across in in the music of the coup, not that they're not, you know, dead serious yeah. songs as well, but I'm thinking of 5 million ways to kill a CEO, which is this, a similar combination of edgy and funny. Yeah, it's it's definitely comedy song. I mean, because I have a class analysis, I wouldn't think that killing a CEO would actually do anything for us except for get a new CEO hired. Um, yeah. But in it, the ways that you kill a CEO is like you, you put a dollar in the barrel of a gun and <laughs> he tries to suck it out and kills himself or you throw a 20 in a river and, you know, but he's got lead boots on. See if he jumps so he in. jumps in. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Um but then we also have songs like Ass Breath Killers, which are, which is a commercial 
uh, for these pills that you take that stop you from kissing the boss's ass. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you so, also have a song about wearing clean underwear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these are all just different ways to to come at things that 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 are different angles of thinking about things and all of those those sorts of things so um i know that you know had i approached this and been like let's say people like this certain genre this is these genre this genre works and i tried to do that um I don't think it would have been as good because then it would have been like the only difference. This is this particular genre, comedy, horror, whatever. And the difference is the politic. Then that's the only thing about it is the politic. And after a while, that wears thin on you. And, you know, um, so um, I need to take it as it goes. And and just like the connection to our music is there's all sorts of influences in our music that wouldn't be considered hip hop. Matter of fact, we make songs that some people are like, that's not even hip hop. And I'm like, I don't care. You know, Um, (laughs) then there are songs that that's too hip hop or whatever. But I think that what works is the commitment to the characters, to the main character at the very least. Um, and that everything is you're along the ride with him, where even if you you disagree with him, you, you understand why he does it. You understand. You might dis- strongly disagree, but it's not. He's not all of a sudden some other person. You're still there with him. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and I think that's one of the, and so at that point, if you're staring in his face and he's vulnerable and he, every, and he's reacting to things the way you think a human being would react emotionally, um, then you could have unicorns or elephants fly in the sky and it would seem right you know so it's um you know that that i think that that's one of the things that works and also just being more dedicated to telling a more dedicated to making it exciting than I was to the politic of it. One thing I learned with, you know, but I I had to make, make it feel real to me. And so making it feel real to me means an analysis of the world that I believe is real. Like what would happen? Like a lot of, there's a turn in the end and in, in, and, and, in in somewhere in the ha- in there and a lot of films would the wrap up would be that someone exposes something and everybody learns the truth and the bad guys go to jail and or 
the good guys take over whatever the bad guy was doing. In your film, the stock, their stock, the bad guy's stock goes up. Yeah. And so, and that's because that's realistic to me. It's not because, oh, I have to put this particular analysis. It's because I've been steeped in this analysis for so long and I've looked at the world in these ways that, you know, you know, I'm an artist, but I, I'm somebody who, in the late 90s, you can find me on record during the first dot-com boom saying that it was fake and that it was going to bust. You can also find me in 2007, 2008, saying the same thing. It's not, be- it, it, it's not because, and, and a lot of the stuff in this movie that people feel like is a product of the Trump era was written way before Trump. And it's not because I'm a genius. It's not because I have ESP or can tell the future. It's because that a class analysis of the world is just simply a more scientific, real analysis of how things work. And when you have that, then, you know, you can expound on what those things lead to. That makes a lot of sense in the case of, of the company at the center of the the neoliberal dystopia that your film portrays the the Oakland the film is set in is a sort of near near future the the company at the center of it is is worry free which offers people a form of contractual slavery essentially and it was hilariously and disturbingly almost plausible for a variety of reasons but including the the sadism and misanthropy and greed driving the CEO of Worry Free, Steve Lift, who really reminded me a lot of Elon Musk. And I, I would say the part that's left out about it is that he really feels like he's doing something for the world. I think everyone in this movie and everyone in the world thinks that they're doing the right thing. There are very few like villains with the handlebar mustache going, ha, ha, ha. There are a few of the libertarians, but most folks believe that they're on the right side. Often it's, it's, it's not misanthropy. Often it's some elevated sense of heroism that they've got the plan that everyone else. But it's interesting. A lot of people have made the connection like you just did to the tech world. That's not the connection I was making at all. I mean, uh, he could be Ford. He could be any number one of the industrialists. He could be Arm and Hammer the first. He could be, you know, it's all, um, it it's capitalism. It's not this new wave of technology te- technology companies. That's just the new thing. The old industrialists were the new wave of technology companies, too. It's how capitalism works. It's not a, it's not a personality thing. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you say that because it seems to me that that worry worry freeze pitch to workers and to society via their public relations is to sort of at least implicitly contrast this contractual slavery that they're offering with the short sort of 
shit casualized labor that people are subjected to in places like the call center where Cassius works, where they are, if I remember correctly, are they working on commission? Yes. Whereas worry-free, you get your, your meals and housing taken care of or three hots in a cot, as Cassius's uncle puts it. And those are the sorts of things that in today's labor market, people can't depend upon, not that they ever have. But so it seems like you said that the the CEO, Steve Lift, could have been Ford. And, and to me, it seemed as though what Worry Free was offering is this sort of sinisterly remixed nostalgia for the much exaggerated but still very much exalted glory days of post-war America where a job meant, at least in our memory of it, that you got taken care of as something that's, even if it's slavery under Steve Lift's model, that it's arguably better, their pitch is that it's better than the the neoliberal labor market that, that we currently work in. And just like now, and what we talked about earlier, I mean, which is one reason why even the story had to have the homeless camps is that's your other choice. Living in your car, um, living in, in a lean-to, um, you have this army of unemployed folks that the ruling class uses as leverage uh, to have people work even for less um, than they were already. So it gets down to that point. And, um, you know, actual slavery was, chattel slavery was sold as that too, as saving these people. Yeah, the paternalism is supposed to be, is, is sold as helpful. And, and to be clear, worry-free exists right now. It just exists in other countries. And when I say in other countries, I mean U.S. corporations do it in other countries. They have a legal way of being like, well, we subcontracted to this, much like gangsters subcontract out to hitmen, right? Still the gangster, the head gangster doing it. And so these things exist. The absurdest part is that it's happening in the U.S. The way that I think about it in, in Marxist terms is, you know, that wage, labor, and slavery have never been far from each other. In the early development of capitalism, obviously, they were they were both critical and intertwined. Even wage labor is doubly free in the sense that you're free to work, but you're also free not to work, which means that you're free to starve. That's the kind of status quo of exploitation in the U.S. And then, as you just pointed out, there is this brazen expropriation where the mask that the order puts on in the U.S. is taken off in the third world. But as you said, they're, they're, they're profoundly interlinked. They're part and parcel of the same thing. I agree. Cosigned. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about the Equisapiens, which... Of course, because if you're listening to this point, you should have already watched the film. Uh, they are horse-human hybrids that Steve Lift engineers as, I guess the best term is a slave labor army. Mm-hmm. The obvious thing that's useful about them to some, to a capitalist like Steve Lift is that they're stronger than ordinary humans. But thinking through 
the film afterwards, it seemed to me that what makes them so hyper-exploitable is something that's very human, actually, which is them being subjected to something that looks a lot like racialization. Well, there, there'll be this other species, this other species, which actually is what race meant at the first in, in the first place. Um, uh, yeah, they, they, would, they would be this other grouping that people could then separate themselves from. You know, I'm sure Steve Lift, being as savvy as he is, would talk about how these were the people that really um, couldn't have really survived otherwise. Talk about the benefit of this increased production. And and also um, them being spliced with horses is, uh, you know, it's something that we've already come to accept. I mean, you know, we, you know, we think about horses in our culture as, as work animals. We have it in our language, workhorse, horsepower. It goes with that. It also goes with, you know, there's allusions to other racist tropes about black folks in it as well. So, yeah, one of those was one of those occurred to me. Yeah, the, the, the you know, hung like a horse, all of that. Um, yeah, I had an ex girl, my ex girlfriend at the time, who, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, was very into horses and claimed it wasn't sexual. Um, and so that's probably part of where that came from. But if you listen to some of these horse folks and how they talk about their horses, it sounds sexual. I'm not saying it's bad or it's wrong or anything like that. I'm not even saying that they're having sex with their horses. I'm just saying there's a feeling that's unexplained that comes out in how they talk about their horses' asses. And... <laughs> It exists, and there's a, there are things that happen while they're riding. There is a horse sex scene. There's a horse sex scene. Yeah, in the movie. No, no, in real in real life. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, no, there's a and there was a documentary about it. I didn't see it because, uh, like, actually, like a guy was killed. Oh, someone uh, just told me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, well, I actually saw it. it. Actually, weirdly enough, brings me to another question I wanted to ask you, because <clears throat> I saw the. I remember very clearly about ten years ago, I saw the preview for this documentary about people who have intercourse with horses. Before seeing the film uh, "Killer of Sheep," mm. and I wanted to. I saw ask, that so long ago that I don't really remember it. I just remember parts of it. Yeah, me too. But so, I, but but I wanted to to ask you, generally speaking, whether whether you're your approach to filmmaking is sort of sui generis or whether you see yourself as engaged in, in particular filmmaking traditions, um, including uh, black filmmaking traditions like the LA rebellion. I've never been good at doing what other people are doing, but I think it's funny. I had, um, I just remember this one conversation is from a long time ago one of the coups old drummers is this guy, uh, Thomas Pridgen, who ended up becoming the Mars Volta's drummer. 
um, and on a lot of their big albums. And he's wild and plays all over the place, all that sort of stuff. When he toured with us, it was his first tour. He was 17. We had to ask his grandmother to uh, for permission. And um, I remember he was just playing all this stuff that I just wasn't into particularly. And, and he, but he was into it. He's a drummer. He's listening to these other drummers and playing all kind of other stuff. And I was like, man, can we just listen to some funk? And he was like, you know, in a very arrogant way, but I, I kind of use this to assert. He's like, Boots, I am the funk. I don't need to listen to funk. Whatever I play from something else turns into funk once I play it. Because <laughs> funk is what translates through me. It's not this particular rule of this beat is funk or that beat is funk. It's me playing things. And that's the same thing that I would say with the black aesthetic. That I'm not trying to do what someone else, you know, like, for instance, I love Arthur Jaffa's work who's the, the, the cinematographer for Daughters of the Dust and Crooklyn and has some new stuff out that I want to see that's at the MoMA right now. Um, and actually, and I actually called him up, like, as soon as I finished the thing. I, I got finished writing it the first time. I called him up, got his number. He didn't know me. We had a four-hour conversation. Um, but I would say this, that trying to fit in to something is something I don't do well. And, uh, you know, like I always tried to sound like Ice Cube early on and I never was able to do it. And, and, I, and I'm lucky that I wasn't able, able to pull that off. I pull from so many different places. I get so many, I have so many different influences and, yeah, just my experiences and everything are make it now what what I did is part of the black filmmaking tradition. I don't get there by copying what Spike Lee did. I don't think anyone should. I don't get there by copying what, you know, what uh, they did on Friday or, you know, or what... Uh, what they did with Killer of Sheep or To Sleep with Anger or any of that stuff. Um, it's taking the elements that you have and 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 uh, working with them within, you know, using your experience and your ideas about life that way. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is October, The Story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville which is now out in paperback. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution, China Mievel tells the extraordinary story of this pivotal moment in history. In February of 1917, Russia was a backwards autocratic monarchy, mired in an unpopular war. By October, 
After not one but two revolutions, it had become the world's first worker state, straining to be at the vanguard of global revolution. How did this unimaginable transformation take place? In a panoramic sweep, stretching from St. Petersburg and Moscow to the remotest villages of a sprawling empire, Mieville uncovers the catastrophes, intrigues, and inspirations of 1917 in all their passion, drama, and strangeness. Intervening in long-standing historical debates, but told with the reader new to the topic especially in mind, here is a breathtaking story of humanity at its greatest and most desperate, of a turning point for civilization that still resonates loudly today. October, the story of the Russian Revolution by China Mieville, out now in paperback from Verso Books. I want to ask you about one criticism I heard about the film. I think it's the the main one that I heard on this uh, podcast, Pop Rocket. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I want to get your 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 take. the The criticism I heard is that Detroit is portrayed as a prize to be won by men, Cassius versus the labor organizer Squeeze, who's played by uh, uh, Stephen Yoon. Have you heard this critique, and what do you make of it? Well, I disagree with it because that's not actually what happens in the movie. Um, I think, before I go into it, I think that um, we look at films in the way that we've looked at other films. And so sometimes we miss stuff, and sometimes we ignore things that don't fit into what we already say. So Detroit, and I have a particular feeling about this because... Detroit is someone is the character that's closest to me and that I wrote all of these characters as myself. There's a struggle going on in me and going on in the world that has to do with art, organizing, and finding one's meaning in life. And uh, so they, they represent different parts of my brain. But in this film, uh, she does not, Cassius doesn't know that, um, Cassius doesn't know that, that Detroit hooks up with Squeeze. She know, he knows that he, she hooked up with somebody else and that she says she's not going to for whatever her own reasons are, mess with anymore. She hooks up with the person that she feels is closest to her. She doesn't go to him having, she doesn't, she doesn't go to him as a response to Cassius. If you look at it from her perspective, and that's the thing that I'm thinking is happening, is that people are only looking at it from Cassius's perspective, even though Cassius doesn't know about Squeeze, but they're looking at it from the dude's perspective. And, and there's a little bit of, I have to say that in some of the critiques, I haven't heard that one, but in some of the critiques, there's a little bit of quote unquote slut shaming going on where they're like, why did she even have to do that? And so therefore it must be fall into this other category. So her dude is selling slaves working for the company that she doesn't, that, that she is working against. She's an artist trying to do something 
with her life. Here's this organizer that she thinks is sexy. We see some of that happening. We see that she knows he thinks she's sexy. She does her big show, her big performance, and the asshole ex-boyfriend comes and interrupts it because he knows better for her, and she kicks him out of there. So she dabbles in hooking up with somebody who I think is also selfish in his own ways, and we see that in certain ways about Squeeze. Um, But she hooks up with him because she wants to hook, not because she wants a relationship or whatever, but she hooks up with somebody that she wants to hook up with. That would be the case if she was saying that, oh, if, if she made any sort of thing that said that she might be going with Squeeze or that might be her man now or whatever, she wants, she's attracted to this dude and she messes around with him and then tells her man that it happened, but it's not like you got to get right. He doesn't change what he does because of her. He doesn't change until after the, until after the Equisapiens. He doesn't like his friends are, are, are shaming him. His girlfriend is shaming him. But that's my whole point is that that doesn't really, that's not really necessarily what always changes people. Usually what changes people, and he he even says it in there, is how they look at themselves, how they see them, how they perceive themselves based on what they think they can do in the world. And that, that, that when he saw the Equisapien, I mean, I feel like we see it, but then he also says it to her that he sees himself in them. He looks at himself. That's the reason why we have the Equisapiens, by the way, is so that he can see himself and so that, you know, uh, and see how they're using him. But if it was going to be for her, then he would have changed himself. He wouldn't wouldn't have kept on going on the strike when she said, I'm I'm leaving you if you don't change this. Um, And he didn't even... You know, and and so, you know, that's I think that that's why there's no triangle there because he doesn't know about the other person. He's not. And and that she that that there is no squeeze getting her squeeze is moving on to the next town. She is. I mean, he's made that clear that that's what he does. She's attracted to him. But people can't see her possibly acting on that without wanting a boyfriend. And I think that that's us looking at movies with the same motivation. There's nothing else about her that says that sort of thing. I'll put it like this. There is a critique in there. The, the other critique that I've heard. And I, I'm, this is not me disagreeing with those critiques, but I'm just saying that uh, there needs to be a, a different metric, a different way to look at it. Because um, this film doesn't pass the Bechtel test. It's centered around one main character, and there are, there are three others. Um, 
It doesn't pass the Bechdel test. But think about most of the films that do pass the Bechdel test. Uh, Rom-coms, Jennifer Aniston, things like that. The conversation that makes it not pass the Bechdel test is often about why someone isn't getting married yet or something like that, (laughs) right? There's no character in... I'll put this up against 200 other films that pass the Bechdel test and challenge them to have a character that's as radically feminist as Detroit in actions or in espoused belief. There needs to be a different... That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a critique, but it seems like the Bechdel test is something to be applied to films in which which they're not asking for anything more. There are decisions that I made in the telling of this. There's, you know, there's Cassius and three other characters. One of the three is a woman. Now, I could have made Squeeze a female character, but then that liaison that they have might have seemed like I was just trying to say it was okay because she's a woman. And under, like, heteronormative patriarchy, that wouldn't count in the same way. And I could have made... To make Sal a female character, make his best friend a female character, would have, I felt, and I could be wrong about this, needed more explaining to do to make it feel real. To make it feel, you know, your uh, uh, the best friend that you hang around with every day. Um, and, you know, it, it, it needs more explaining for, for um, to me. And, uh, you know, that character. Which would have had his character take up more space than he's intended to. Yeah. And and then, then I could have had could have had Steve, you know, this was actually suggested. And this is a thing that I turned down. Like Steve Lift be a Tilda Swinton type. And I didn't want the evil person in this to be a woman and to be seeming like I'm making a comment on women in power or something like that. Um, because I would have gotten people liking it for the wrong reasons. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and so there are a lot of things that this film doesn't do. There's only one Asian character in it. No uh, Latino characters in it. Um, I mean, there's other Asian people in that are extras. There are other Asian people that there are other Latino characters that are extras. But in the four characters we have, we don't have all of that. I also could have casted it like that, and it would have felt like I was marketing. You know what I'm saying? And I just, I wanted it to feel a little more real, and so I did that the best I can. And maybe people look at it and feel like out of those four characters, there should have been one of each person in some way. And, I, you know, I do see some movies trying to do that, and it just feels like a marketing scheme. Um, but I think there should be way more stories. To I will say this also about Detroit. If that's what you take away from it, when you have, like I said, this woman who's, who her main, con- here, pe- people also are underestimating, her main conflict is between, her, uh, between art and organizing. She has an intellectual conflict that is um that is not one that female characters normally have so a lot of people don't even see that as part of her thing 
Like she's going through this thing and it happens before us on the screen. And it's a conflict between art and organizing. But because we don't, we rarely get characters, period, with a conflict like that. But even more so, a female character. So we look at their main conflict as being about who they hooked up with. And that's, a, that's sad right there. But I will say also that she's in, we do see her interacting with um, her team of other left-eye activists, which is an all-female group, grouping that is, uh, you know, artists and activists and interacting with her. We couldn't have them actually speak on screen because we didn't have enough money to have another actor speak. Um, so, you know, um, that was, that's where that happened. But I mean, we do hear them speaking, but it's not the actual actors that are speaking. So we couldn't, so that happens in the ADR, you know, in the, in the voices that we record after the fact, but not with the actors that are right there. Um, just SAG rules. We couldn't do that. Um, so anyway, I would say this again, like there, there's so much happening with her that some of the rules that are being applied, um, I think they just need to be looked at in the context of everything that's happening with her. Cause I don't think she's just, uh, uh, you know, manic pixie dream girl, because her, her, her things that she goes through have nothing to do with Cassius, and that Cassius doesn't change his trajectory based on her, and specifically says that. And yes, they do end up together in the end for a second. We see where the end goes, so who knows? But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the thing is, is that that's how things happen. People hook up, they get back together, they do all, you know, that's just the reality of of things. People don't just, you know, it's not some clean storyline that happens. Nothing about this film is like that. Um, they do love each other for whatever that means. Um, but the, uh, the, the fact that they get back together doesn't make her a prize because... There's no competition happening between him and Squeeze, at least not on Cassius's side, and it doesn't seem to be on Squeeze's side because he's unaware. And, and he's and and, yeah. and Squeeze has said like what he does, which is go town to town, organizing stuff, and he's going to be gone after that. The last question I want to ask is: the film highlights the way that people's how people's grievances get turned against the people closest to them rather than the people who are truly screwing them at the top. And that's portrayed in a number of ways. There's, you know, the people getting annoyed at home by telemarketers, you know, they become the face of consumer capitalism. The worker becomes the face of, of consumer capitalism rather than the company that that worker is working for, the system that allows that company to have some sort of function in society. There's Cassius's uncle, who is initially the face of a greedy landlord until it turns out that he's also behind on his rent or mortgage, I don't remember which one, and is worried about losing his own home. 
And then I really like the middle management at the call center, who is this most proximate visible face of exploitation. But the dude with the neck tattoo is clearly not the guy running the show in the big picture of capitalist America. Yeah, exactly. I think that uh, in this film, everybody's uh, culpable. Everybody's, you know, got some element of hypocrisy to what they, between what they say and what they do. I think that everyone is a part of the system. The answer doesn't come with people simply acting clean in their actions. It comes with them joining together to unite against the ruling class. And in this case, how it happens is through withholding labor. And, um, and that's the answer. The answer isn't in getting the right personalities as the right manager. The answer isn't in one person getting away the answer is in everybody, because that person doesn't necessarily get away. The answer is in everyone, is in the working class joining together. Well, Boots Riley, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Boots Riley is the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You and frontman for The Coup. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, though for artisans, theory and propaganda may be their first end, as a result of this association, they require a new need, the need for society, and what appears as a means becomes an end. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a nice review. What those reviews do is help put us in touch with new listeners, same as you telling your friends, family, whoever about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And find us at patreon.com slash the dig where you can make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a big help. 